welcome to the Three Beards Podcast. My name is Craig, along with Austin and Chris. Passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century. Let me out. Welcome back, everybody. We've got a couple of great shows going to come up tonight. First, I'd like to introduce Carl Lehrberger. Um, Carell, as he prefers to go by right now, he is coming to us from Colorado at his work, where it's purehemptech.com or purevisiontechnology.com are the two sites where you can find out more information about where he works there, where industrial hemp. And he is also going to be talking to us about his book, which is Secrets of Ancient America, Archaeoastronomy, and the Legacy of the Phoenicians, Celts, and Other Forgotten Explorers. You can find also more information about that at newhistoryofamerica.com, his website. Check that out. Fantastic book. I uh, got the PDF of that, and I um, read. I was reading through that. And I don't know if we'll get into a whole lot of it, but I'm going to tell you, it's just one of those, I, I feel like I was cheated as I was growing up because, man... <laughs> This just the part, just the part alone on Christopher Columbus. Yep, there's a book. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, it was eye opening. You know, just to that yeah. part alone. It's so, a good one. Well, welcome to the show, Carell. How are you, sir? Carell, I was already correct. Oh, thank you so Carell. much, and and, and uh, right off of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just say that. Uh, we got two and a half beards tonight, and uh, I'm very honored to be part of the Three Beards prod podcast and a warm welcome to uh, Three Beards uh, viewers and listeners. <clears throat> I'd love to have you here, man. That was, that's one of those. I was, as we were going through this, just some of the things that you're in, you know, especially since you're there at work. Um, we're, we'll talk about Secrets of America here, um, probably in the latter um, portion of the show here. Because he's at work, so why don't we just break into that right there? What would you say was your biggest, um, I don't know, driving force? The you know the thing that made made you really have this passion about industrial hemp and the uses and the benefits that this actually has to society that has been lost through generations that have basically been taught this is a Schedule One narcotic that you know we can't touch this stuff. This is dangerous. This will kill you. This is heroin. So I'll let you go, go for there. Well, thank you. And, and there is a segue between the archaeology and archaeoastronomy. 
and uh, my work with uh, biomass and hemp. And it, it, it is it, that we've all been lied to from day one. And we continue to be lied to. And whether we're talking about our history and who discovered America or not, or whether we're talking about uh, the benefits of plant-based economies and uh, uh, plant-based medicines, uh, we've just been given a, a big lie. So part of my work has been to uh, really dissect those lies, try to get to the heart of the matter, whether it be uh, our history. But in the case of our world today, we live in a world dominated by fossil fuels, uh, pollution, and greed. And uh, those in the renewable energy sector are really doing our best to replace uh, really hazardous technologies that are not just polluting the planet, but are killing the planet with plant-based solutions. So 25 years ago, I created uh, Pure Vision Technology with my brother, Ed Lerberger. And we, with the help of an MIT scientist, uh, uh, developed a new technology, a completely new technology that uh, can replace oil refineries by using biomass, which is non-food plant material, uh, instead of oil. And uh, it's been a 25-year quest to uh, scale up the technology and to uh, be able to get it to the point where we can deploy it, where it makes economic sense to the big corporate players of the world. Uh, so uh, unlike most companies that have uh, 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 really been through the hard times of, of, of struggle against the fossil fuel industries. Uh, we have persevered and our technology has persevered. And uh, we have made the jump to hemp because hemp stocks is a form of biomass. And the hemp industry in Colorado got started in 2014 when it became legal. And we really had a lot of action here in in Colorado and, and of course other states as they uh, legalized uh, industrial hemp in the last mm -hmm. five years. But in nearly every state where uh, industrial, uh, where hemp is being produced, the stocks are being thrown away. Uh, the, the supply chain for CBD type hemp uh, is very well established and uh, every state in in the country now, uh, can it, it's legal to have hemp grown and hemp products. Uh, so we have a very uh, rich supply chain. And in fact, I just, uh, this weekend was at the largest industrial hemp trade show in the world. And oh, wow. unlike the early years of our industry, which were completely dominated by the CBDs and the medicinal aspects of, of the industrial hemp found in the flowers, we're really seeing great strides being made by both large and small companies at being able to use the hemp stock for thousands, and I could easily say tens of thousands of applications, ranging from what we call in the industry the high-hanging fruit, which is using the stocks to make textile-grade fibers, uh, all the way to making chemicals, to making food products, to making building products, and um, all sorts of different type of plastics as well. So the 
uh, incentive to get into hemp was based on what we see as a total waste of the hemp stock and uh, to take advantage of the, the really growing interest in both plant-based as well as cannabis-based uh, agriculture. You know, when, when we talk about hemp or cannabis, what we like to talk about is full hemp utilization. So we're not just talking about using the flowers. We're not just talking about growing the uh, grain or the seeds, which are one of the most nutritious uh, uh, foods on the planet, but we're also talking about the stocks. And the stocks can be the basis of really an industrial revolution, a plant-based revolution. And uh, as an example of that, finally, after decades, we're seeing large companies, including car companies, beginning to take interest in using hemp in their bumpers and in their uh, building products. So it's a great time. Uh, it's been a long struggle. We in the hemp industry see the light. Uh, and uh, especially with uh, increased legalization and getting rid of these incredibly dr uh, draconian laws, um, uh, there's, there's incredible opportunities for value-added agriculture, as well as replacing some of these most polluting technologies on the planet with, with, with plant-based technologies. So that really got me excited about it. And uh, uh, our focus at Pure Hemp Technology is to take the hemp stalks and produce uh, hemp pulp to make many different kind of, of hemp paper products. So uh, for all you wannabe hempsters out there, check us out at uh, Pure Hemp Technology. That's www.purehemptech. And uh, beyond hemp, because hemp is just a very small part of the biomass on the planet, uh, we need to be using those the wheat straws, the corn stovers, the leftover uh, sugarcane uh, residues, and turning those into valuable, not only value-added products for the farmer, but valuable products for humanity. So let's go plant-based, everybody. Yeah, I, I, I said I, was, I definitely didn't want to break, you know, break in there because I agree completely. I just moved down here to Florida three years ago, so I, I born and raised in Oregon, and so where they're in central Oregon, they really took off with the industrial hemp. Um, uh, friends of mine, uh, it, they started their own business. They converted some of their hay fields into hemp fields. And so they just started growing industrial hemp. And so he, he was bringing on people, anybody that they could get for extra people. Cause it, when it came to harvest time, you've got to get all, you know, cause there, there's this quick window. I mean, you should know it in Colorado. There is a quick window where premium growing, it goes right there. And then all of a sudden massive freeze. And if you wait too long, you know, it's, is pretty much, you know, you've lost a lot of the value in some of the material cause it's been frozen and it's, so there was just that quick, got to harvest it. And I really learned a lot about what you were talking about. Just all these benefits, these products that can be made from this, this mess, you know, cause everybody, for, as soon as you hear hemp, the first thing that pops in your head, hippies getting stoned, all you're doing is smoking, you know, walking around with a beaded, you know, beaded thing around your neck with beads, you know, using hemp string, you know, and that's what you think of hemp, but then you don't realize you can basically make a car, 
you know, although, like you said, the car parts, you can, the pin, you can have your pin and stuff like that. And you could be doing that out of hemp products. And a lot of people, when you, as like your stuff, as you do that, people are like, oh my God, I didn't realize this. And that's what, that's what's really cool. And that's what I was, hey, I was here's really looking a shout to out to about. all the, all the people in Oregon. Here's a shout out, Craig, to all the people in Oregon. I, I lived in Oregon for many years and have a lot of friends there. So thank you for bringing that up. And also thank you for bringing up the, the point about the growers. You know, it's been a tough uh, four or five years for, for most growers, learning the ropes, uh, dealing with locusts, dealing with rains and mold and freeze. So the early growers that got into this are, are really the heroes and the pioneers. And that's why we're, we're so strong on value-added agriculture and, and, and whole head utilization. And you also make a great point, you know, about, hey, this is a hippy-dippy thing. But I'm here to tell yeah. uh, Three Beards, and I'm here to tell your audience that uh, it's, not, it's, it's not the uh, hippies or the yippies or, or anyone that's really uh, knocking on the door big time except the big companies are seeing the light. And I can tell you that we, uh, and I've been doing this for 25 years, uh, are finally seeing some of the big corporate movers and shakers uh, in America taking a very hard look at using industrial hemp in their products. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I think it's gonna pay off for the uh, farmers that have paid their dues and the small business people and entrepreneurs and scientists that have been working on this for forever. So thank you for those great words, Craig. Oh, you're. Do you do you think that's going to be something that's going to help get Washington's attention and maybe get some of this stuff changing? Is the fact that now you've got the bigger dollar players, the ones that actually line, you know, we'll say, so we don't line pockets, you know, when they try allegedly. to allegedly, you know, yeah, alleged, yeah, we got to make sure we put the allegedly. Do you think that's going to really start make this ball move now that you, like you said, you've got the big money players starting to take notice? Uh, I think, you know, Washington did their job in the farm bill and they gave the states uh, the go ahead to legalize it and to grow hemp. Um, you know, I'd like to see Washington really focus on the bigger picture of uh, uh, the climate change issues now that will come back uh, as a priority in America. And, and that's also a driver for these large companies because they got a free ride under the Trump administration regarding climate change and any kind of penalties for uh, destroying the planet. Uh, I think that's going to change. And the uh, companies that uh, are uh, see the writing on the wall are the ones that are being the movers and the shakers. But like so many cases about Washington, it's about priorities and then getting them out of the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've done we've done our we've done our work, and now uh, the, the, we we know what the cultivars are to grow. We know how to process the material. Uh, we know what the end products are. We just need the money and the infrastructure to scale up these technologies so that we can provide these hemp intermediate for the car companies, the building material companies, uh, for the fuel companies. And so we're at that point now where bring on, bring on the financing people because we're ready to go.
<laughs> you yeah, answered I mean, my question pretty much. And, and one more thing about uh, your point. Yeah, yeah. Just let me ask one, one more point. When, when oh, yeah, you sorry. know we talk about industrial, when when we talk about industrial hemp, let's not forget that uh, industrial uh, CBDs, uh, uh, hemp that you produce uh, seeds out of, they're all part of the cannabis family. This incredible, miraculous plant, and there are thousands, thousands of our fellow brothers and sisters in jail today for whatever they did. They, they smoked a doobie, they smoked a roach, they got a little something in their car, whatever. So we can't, as, as this thing goes corporate, we, we can't forget, it's not just whole hemp utilization, but it's really the miraculous plant and all the wonderful things that it's bringing, not just our industrial society with uh, industrial products, but medicinal products. For healing, yeah, and oh, that yeah. includes marijuana. So uh, let's all keep that in mind. And we made so much progress with uh, uh, getting it legal after they made it illegal to grow hemp in 1937. But we still have some work to do uh, on on legalizing cannabis and and getting our brothers and sisters out of jail. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Awesome. No, you had your thing, Austin. Yeah, you kind of answered my question. One of my two questions. Well, um, the first one was how long does it take to grow the hemp? And the second question, you kind of answered it. You said you can make bumpers and they're already working on it. Is there a possibility we can run our vehicles off of hemp? It's always a back and forth, oil, electric. Yeah. Hemp seems like, I mean, we're literally, we, we can produce hemp. Why can't we just run our cars off of hemp? Right. Well, yeah, as to your first question, uh, one of the, great things about hemp, it, uh, unlike trees, is that it grows in six months. Uh, and so if you're using trees to make paper and uh, take down the forest like they're doing in the Amazon uh, so yeah. that we can have paper to throw away, uh, 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 that's how we're running the planet. But industrial hemp grows in, in six months. Uh, some of the uh, like seed varieties will take a little longer. Uh, so it's a total renewable resource. And again, whole hemp utilization, the seeds to nutrition, the flowers to medicinals, the stock to industrial products. Um, so, uh, and, and your second question, Austin, uh, was. Oh yeah. I mean, you said we can make, they're working on making bumpers and car parts. Why can't we just run off of hemp? I mean, we're okay, always yeah, fighting yeah. over making complete electric or we're fighting over oil. I mean, like you right. said, it takes six months to produce this. We can, we need to run off the hemp. I mean, it's better for the environment and it doesn't hurt right. us. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Right. So, you know, we at Pure Hemp Technology, we're, we're big practicers of reusable uh, and recyclable. And so when, you know, we can make a disposable paper cup out of hemp and yay. Or, yeah. you know, we can really talk about reuse. We can, and, and we can talk about recycling. So you can't really do that when you talk about fuel. And I, I, I may not be in sync with a lot of people in our industry, but I personally think that it's a total waste to take a precious resource, whether it's oil or hemp, and burn it up in an in, in, uh, internal combustion engine at a 30% efficiency. So yeah. for example, we have people 
companies coming to us and say, hey, can can you make fuel out of hemp stalks? And, and the answer is absolutely. It's called ethanol and there are other fuels, uh, but we don't see that as the highest value. Uh, yeah. However, having said that, we are uh, 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 talking to several companies now who do see the value and want to use our technology to uh, make alcohol out of hemp stocks. And if if that's the way they want to go with it as a short term solution, that's much better than taking oil from the Middle East or, or taking oil from uh, Canada and and putting chemicals in it so it flows through pipelines. Uh, yeah. uh, so th that's certainly going to be better. But when it comes to our transportation sector, we've really got to get beyond the internal combustion engine. And, you know, thank, thank goodness, like hemp uh, came back around from 1937. So is the electric car. And that's a part of the solution. But everybody's got to know and everybody's got to realize that if you are having an electric car, say in Arizona, and you're getting your electricity from those four corner uh, coal fire power plants, you ain't doing anybody any good. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a fun, funny person. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Yeah. Oh, I, I, since we're just talking about agriculture, um, did you start uh, becoming aware of the uh, hemp farm and uh, uh, industry when you were in uh, major trips to South America, Central America? You know, what kind of uh, farms would Americans be uh, looking to buy, uh, you know, is there a little bit of a difference? Uh, uh, do, you know, do you want something on a hillside, uh, flat, you know, uh, uh, with where uh, water's uh, going to be, uh, you know, you know could, could lay on the soil a little bit longer than on a hillside? Like, you know, what is the optimal type farmland uh, in, in America? You can grow hemp in Alaska. You can grow hemp in South America. There isn't a place, I don't think, in North America where you can't grow hemp. And that's one of the most beautiful things about it. Now, obviously, uh, speaking of, of, of Oregon, Craig, Oregon mm -hmm. is perhaps the most prolific place that I've seen uh, where, where hemp grows, uh, partly because of the, the volcanic soil and partly because of the microculture in Oregon. But we talk to growers from Vermont. We talk to growers from Michigan. We talk to growers from Florida. Each state will have a different situation as it relates to its climate, uh, the kind of pests they have, the kind of soil they have. Uh, so really, hemp can be grown anywhere, and that's one of the greatest things about it. Quite often, though, when you look at it from an industrial scale and, and you say, well, where's the best place to grow? What side of the hill to grow on? And uh, Those are not really the, the big questions. The questions are, uh, where are the markets for our hemp uh, products, our hemp seeds, our hemp stocks? Stocks are very bulky, so you don't want to have to ship them a long way. 
So many people in the industry say, hey, I've got a 2000 acre farm, you know, let's uh, put a biorefinery here. Mm, that may not be the best idea. Why don't we put the biorefinery where the markets are and grow hemp around that? Now, that's not to say that that the that's first example grower is, is out to lunch. No, because uh, it, we, we can put smaller refineries perhaps near him. But the answer to the question is hemp is so prolific and it's such a miraculous plant that it doesn't take much uh, water uh, and it can, practically grows everywhere. Having said that, it's not easy to be a grower and we got to put our, our hats off to the uh, pioneers, uh, growers who really learned the hard lessons of, of not only what varieties to grow, uh, but how to do it and not lose your shorts. Yeah, yeah my dog's on hemp right now. <laughs> we got calming shoes. It's like he, he's all, he, you know, he gets all itchy. He's sitting there gnawing on his feet. So, so we go, we got these containers. So they're these hemp calming shoes. And so he loves them. So I give him three of those. And next thing I know, I'm like, oh, it's my little buddy stoned. And he just, his eyes are just like back and he's just laying there. And people the are like, there's no, TH, there's no THC. In them. There's a fraction. But when you're talking like to a dog, I've like, even just that, just that little tiny bit, it just, he's just like, you know, he just suddenly, he's just laying there and he just, you can see his eyes are just kind of droopy and you're like, oh, there you go, buddy. <laughs> That's the problem I have with it though, is like, I, I have friends that smoke weed. I have some men's friends that drink alcohol. I drank alcohol a couple of times. I feel like ass the next day from drinking alcohol, even if it's a little bit. And my friends that smoke weed are fine in the next couple hours and it relieves the pain. You hear stories all the time, how hemp, CBD, everything, even just CBD gummies help you relax in your thing, but it's illegal. But alcohol, you can drink as much as you want and drive, but weed is like, no, 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 it's still illegal. I, I can't stand it. <laughs> Who's going to make the hemp distillery? That's what I want to. Well, let's let's have, change you know, those. Let's hemp. change those. Let's change so, those laws. And in terms of a distillery, let me get something for you. So stand by. I just think I'm as he's going too. I'm ah, looking at his we website. Uh, it's paper, man. Hemp paper. Oh, what is that? Yeah. See, there we go. Hemp beer. That, okay. nice. So yeah, let's let's go there. But uh, can we do a whiskey uh, out of hemp uh, again? <laughs> the, 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 it, the, that's even easier. But you got to get those hemp sugars out, and that's the technology of the advanced technologies of not just being able to make CBDs, but actually to get the sugars out of the stock so you can ferment it into uh, gin, rum, and and bourbon. I mean, yeah, like you just said, you know, we're tearing down trees in the, in, in the rainforest that took years upon years to build. Hemp takes six months, and we can make paper products, car parts, and we're not doing it. Like, we need to get more out into the world with this. This is incredible. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, let's – Here, here, Austin. Yeah, I know that <laughs> – yeah, we got it. We got a couple of it's, it's now. Do you do you deal much in the THC side of it or do you just strict mostly to, like you said, the hemp, the hemp side? Because I know obviously you can grow both. The you only know, time I deal with so. uh, the only time I de deal with the THC is after after hours. So uh, our business is completely about uh, industrial hemp. Uh, industrial hemp, you know, has a very 
uh, a minute uh, part uh, of the of the cannabinoids is THC. Uh, a little bit of THC is uh, a really good medicine with CBD because you get kind of a synergistic effect of of uh, all of the of of the cannabinoids. So it's an important uh, uh, part of, of what we do, but uh, uh, legally it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a different set of uh, rules, a different set of laws. There are so many people doing the uh, 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 marijuana uh, business uh, and, you know, it's helped get the whole industry off the ground, but we're in it for transforming the world transforming industrial society. And we believe that hemp can be a very big part of that, not only on the industrial side, but on the value added agricultural side. Now the farmers are not gonna make money uh, selling pure hemp technology, their stocks. No, uh, they're gonna make their money uh, growing the seeds and selling the seeds and potentially the flowers. But we're gonna take those stocks we're going to have a supply of stocks. We're going to get them at a good price from the farmers because they're making their, their, their main money on the seeds. And we're going to turn those stocks into uh, bumpers, into uh, bioplastics, into uh, uh, biochemicals that will replace oil-based chemicals, into building products, and on and on and on. So when those markets get going, it's going to be a green light to the growers to get growing. Cassie's hey. sold. She says she's ready to invest. Sign her yeah. up. Let's, real quick, that's the key word. Bio, <laughs> bio, bio. It's not plastic we have now that doesn't degrade. It's just ruining the environment. Mm -hmm. This thing, it goes back into the environment. <laughs> oh, my God. So, are you uh, getting information from like the pharmaceutical industry that you know, you're, you're cutting into their profits? Just the opposite. <laughs> when, when, and, and when we started selling CBD products in 2015 and 2016, uh, the market share of the pharmaceutical companies in that small uh, CBD uh, market, 1%, 2%, uh, you know, three years ago, they might have had a 5% market share. But today, uh, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing their market share is about 30 or 40%. And as time goes on, the pharmaceuticals will, will really dominate the CBD area. Uh, so it's, it's kind of just the opposite. Uh, they're, they're taking off from the small uh, pioneering companies and uh, uh, taking much more market share. However, it's going to be these small companies and these small, smaller brands that are able to survive, that will be able to make it in regional markets with specialty products, premium brands, organic materials. So, you know, us small timers aren't going to go away, but we can definitely feel the heat of the pharmaceutical companies breathing down our throats. And uh, a lot of what the pharmaceutical companies are doing, it's not like the, what, what we do with like pure hemp extracts and things they are uh, you know making uh what they call in the industry isolates where they isolate just the cbd cannabinoid uh and in, in a powder form and that's what is being put into many of the pharmaceutical based medicines so we will always have the whole hemp 
uh, folks and the whole hemp products as the pharmaceutical companies come in and really take market share from the smaller folks. Nice. Now, kind of like a segue to get kind of like in the thing where we were talking about, because even hemp, it goes back, you know, to your previous, you know, what, what we were talking about, your previous book, The Secrets of Ancient America. This was something that throughout history, this has been used. Hemp, this isn't, a, this isn't a new thing. This is something that thousands of years, this product has been used. It's incredible that the, the pharmaceutical companies and the plastic companies that were pushing rayon and dacron in the, in, in the 30s were able to muster enough uh, political power that they made uh, this incredible plant illegal. And, it, and it, except for a very few years during World War II, it's, it remained legal, illegal to 2014. So it's um, part of the same conspiracy, if you will, of uh, how uh, our history is being presented, how uh, any topic like hemp is being presented. And at the end of the day, I can tell everybody what most of us probably already know. From day one, we've been lied to. We've been lied to about yep. our history. We've been lied to about what, what is our purpose for being here. We are not uh, cogs in the economic wheel. We are spiritual beings here to progress and to make a better world for the future. And that somehow got lost here uh, and we are really doing our best to, to really find our way. And the Secrets of Ancient America book uh, it was a culmination of my research into the, the, uh, some of the archaeology of North America. And the overwhelming conclusion is that, that we have got, uh, been lied to and that the story of our history has been mistold. And it's, it's, it's really uh, uh, has a lot to do with the conquest of the Americas, the destruction of indigenous cultures, uh, and the, the pillage and the rape of the land. And to this day, that ideology of conquest continues around the world. And uh, it's uh, part of writing the book, uh, Secrets of Ancient America, was at least a, 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 an attempt to get some of our history right. Uh, and hopefully I've been able to make a contribution in that regard. Uh, one of the uh, major aspects of my research uh, and of the book was the uh, Celts in America chapters, where we have evidence uh, in many states, beginning in New England states like Massachusetts to Midwestern states like Kansas and Colorado uh, and other states that the Celts from uh, the Iberian Peninsula, which is which is uh, you know now England and in part of France, made it to America over the uh, Atlantic Ocean, set up colonies, set up cities, set it, set up trading routes, explored the Americas, left maps, left uh, remnants of their culture carved in stone. There are places in in four or five states where <clears throat> one can go to a cave or a rock art panel and see uh, uh, 
carved in the stone uh, Celtic writing. And the Celtic writing can be interpreted and uh, embedded in that uh, Celtic writing uh, or nearby or petroglyphs. And the writing is talking about the petroglyphs and the petroglyphs are talking about some type of a celestial event. So we're able to uh, collaborate the writing of the Celts with the celestial event. For example, on an equinox, we might have a, an alignment that takes place at sunrise. So it's not just, hey, those are scratch marks. No, those, those can be read as ancient Celtic. And it, it, the uh, message that they leave in this stone is tied to the celestial alignments at that particular site. And so uh, when we try to present this evidence to the historians and the archaeologists and try to get them to change the, the, the dialogue, they won't, they won't. And to this day, many people are shocked to, to know that the Celts, and in addition to the Celts, the Romans, the Phoenicians, the Chinese, I mean, you know, many, many cultures uh, not only uh, visited here and explored here, but ended up settling here. So uh, we're trying to set the record straight. And really the measure of uh, our work, our collective work is uh, when the National Geographics of the world, the Smithsonian magazines of the world will do an article on the history of the Celts visiting America. But to this point, they deny they were even here. And that's that's what's crazy. I mean, because that, that was one of the things like I wanted to bring up to you because I didn't even know about this, that the Anubis caves in Oklahoma. I'm like, here's here's one. People have always heard rumors about, you know, ancient explorers have come here. You've heard all this stuff. And then one of the things I've through reading your book and going through the stuff, like especially I think it was four chapters that covered the Celt, the Celtic explorers. I believe it was four chapters in that book um, that as you're going through that and you're reading this, you have some of these, and you're looking at, you're like, what do you mean? What do you mean? There's sites in Oklahoma. There's sites in here that have this. Co- I thought they just stuck over to like the Northeast. And then you're realizing, no, they, they were all over this continent. Doing something. I mean, if you want um, for people that don't know this, we'll kind of go a little bit. We had a couple of questions. Um, I think some people were uh, surprised about the Columbus stuff too. But if you want to start with the Anubis Caves, just how this is, I think you you called it one of the Equinox Caves, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, just mention that that the book Secrets of Ancient America began with the mythology of Columbus. And there's just so much mythology around Columbus and uh, the glorification of the conquest the glorification of the destruction of, of Native American culture. And, you know, in the last 10 years, I'm very pleased to, to report that many uh, communities have, and, and some states have actually transformed Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day. And this is so important. And uh, uh, as part of our transformation of our culture and our transformation of our consciousness, because if, if we don't get it, uh, that the lie of the conquest has uh, 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 resulted in uh, a, a, a society that's ready to uh, move forward with nature, 
as the indigenous cultures were, will never get there. So part of uh, uh, the transformation that, that we all want to see happening is the, the, the understanding that we've been lied to, that the con how destructive the conquest was to indigenous cultures, and really a resurrection of respect for uh, the indigenous people, the indigenous cultures, the history, but most importantly, for nature. And that's what's really been lost uh, from the conquest, that nature is something to exploit, something to steal, something to make money on, something outside of us. That's the big dichotomy, that somehow nature is out there to be raped, as opposed to we are a part of nature. And yes. uh, I think that's what we're all working for. Uh, certainly in uh, the archaeology paradigms, uh, we have to start with the recognition of the destruction of the, the conquest and uh, uh, really uh, make amends, not only uh, uh, to the environment, but, but to the peoples of the past and the future. Now, Craig, you, you, you mentioned Anubis Caves. Uh, Anubis Caves is a very sacred site uh, uh, in uh, Oklahoma, and it's a Celtic uh, Mithric site. Mithricism is an, uh, an ancient religion that originated in, in actually uh, India, but went to Persia and then came to the Celts. And uh, the Anubis name refers to the Egyptian dog god. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a dog. And there's a prominent Anubis uh, in, at, at, Anubis, at Anubis Caves. Uh, what the Celts did at the Anubis Caves was in, they left a record of the celebrations of the equinox and in, in the writing. But more spectacular than seeing, you know, Celtic writing, which is which is uh, called Ogham, um, and you know, us moderns can't read it, but but it can be read. Are the alignments that take place uh, at sunset when the sun goes down at Anubis Cave, but they're also nearby uh, sunrise alignments, and these alignments uh, are quite spectacular. Uh, my mentor, Bill McGlone, who thoroughly studied Anubis uh, uh, Caves, calls it the silent opera. Because what happens is when the sun moves across these petroglyphs is they begin to tell a story. Uh, the moving uh, light and shadows and petroglyphs all kind of combine into a story that's not arbitrary, that's very precise. So on the day, the day of the equinox in a nearby cave, uh, at sunrise, uh, there's Celtic writing that says, on the equinox, the sun strikes here. Sun strikes here. And sure enough, on the one day of the equinox, uh, uh, the, as the sun rises, it, it, it sends a ray to, into the cave, onto this panel, and right where it says strikes here, <laughs> only for that day will it actually strike there. So again, we have the corroboration of the uh, uh, writing with the actual uh, solar event uh, that proves that the Celts were there. 
but we also have a, a sense of their cosmology that they encoded in these petroglyphs. And that's what makes it so fascinating. And that's what is so remarkable that we don't have archeologists clamoring to get into the Anubis cave or into the sun <laughs> temple or into any of these archeoastronomical sites that prove the Celts were here. They will not go. They will not write about it. They will not research it. They are part of the archaeo priesthood that wants to maintain that original lie of the conquest. Because as long as Columbus was first, you know, there's some pride there, but, but Columbus yeah. wasn't first. Columbus was the last explorer, not the first. Yeah, and that's, I was kind of, you know, I was, I was gonna talk about, you know, I really liked your description, the archaeo priesthood. You know the way you did that too, because one of those um, in the for you know America BC you know had a profound you know effect on you you know if from the interviews I listened to that this is one of the things that really kind of drove you to really trying to research this stuff and you know with the those things like the students you know because the writer Barry Fell he made some mistakes. You know, everybody can acknowledge the way he did it. I mean, even though his heart might have been in the right place, he might have had the right idea. It just, he did it. He did it. When it comes to the scientific in community, there is a certain set of rules that you follow. And if you don't, you know, God, God pray for you. You know, you're, you're, you're not, you're not going to survive. But that's, that was one of the things like I want to ask. It's like the students, because like you said, me coming out of college, why do I want to go to the same site that 20,000 archaeological students have already traipsed all over. Nothing new is going to be found in these locations. Yeah, it's a great place to look, but you're not going to discover anything it's, new. Why not go, like you said, go to this Anubis cave where you're the first person to take it seriously, and you could write a paper and actually make a name for yourself. It's just remarkable, you know, and you make the great point that, you know, where in the summertime you have all these graduate students and archaeologists going to conventional sites, and that's fine, you know, but not too far away, or it's a Celtic site or a Roman site or, you know, uh, another sacred site that is too controversial, you know. They, they won't be able to get their uh, thesis uh, published, uh, their university professors won't pass them. And this is how the archaeo priesthood works. And that's, you know, why we're in the state we're, we're in. Uh, Craig, I'm so glad you bought up Barry Fell. Barry Fell uh, was a microbiologist and like so many people in the field of uh, archaeoastronomy, in the field of, of really uh, re reviewing history. He wasn't trained as a historian or as an archaeologist, but he made so many dramatic discoveries uh, uh, that that he he was superior in in his intellect in 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 ability yep. to present a new history of America, one that saw a, a foreign travelers coming from Europe uh, across the Atlantic, uh, Indus Valley. Uh, civilizations coming across the Europe, uh, the Pacific to California, uh, and, and even before then, the Phoenicians and Barry Fell documented all these things. But he was ridiculed by uh, academia, and yeah, his research methods were not in many cases up to snuff, but 
you know, the throwing the baby out with the bathwater is murder. Yep. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And uh, he got the short end of the stick, but he's uh, certainly one of the more remarkable diffusionists uh, of the 20th century. And, yeah. and do you want to go ahead, Craig? No, no, go ahead, Mark. Okay. Um, and you just mentioned uh, the Phoenicians coming to America. Uh, you also have a, a section on the Cherokee and Hebrew haplo X gene. Uh, yeah, that's some pretty interesting information. And it, you also uh, cover uh, the, the Los Lunas uh, petroglyph site in New Mexico. And nearby, the hilltop looks like Masada. Uh, from the air. Uh, there's a lot there with that information. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about you know, what this uh, DNA uh, tests are revealing about who was coming to America? Okay, well, that's... Uh... That's a can of worms. <laughs> we'll we'll do our best uh, to 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 dissect that very great question. Um, you know, there is a chapter in the book on Hebrews in America, and in that chapter, uh, I, I cite several different artifacts that that had uh, pre-Hebrew scripts. Uh, I note several sites, uh, including what Mark referenced was. Uh, uh, I think Mystery Mountain in um, uh, uh, New Mexico and uh, the Calais, uh relics from Arizona. So there was, there was really ample uh, evidence to, to suggest uh, that, that Hebrews, uh, different groups of Hebrews uh, did make it to America. And in the case of Calais, uh which uh, was a, uh, community in Arizona uh, settled by uh, uh, Hebrews that had escaped uh, from, uh, not clear in their writings, but had escaped from the Middle East uh, and came to Arizona, uh, presumably for silver, but uh, to settle. Um, th these ancient relics that remain are, are a very interesting uh, cross of early Christian writing, and the and the uh, most of the artifacts are written in Latin, uh, adorned with Hebrew lettering and Hebrew imagery. So it's such a fascinating topic uh, for a historian uh, from the old world to to see how the early Christians blended in uh, a lot of Hebrew uh, symbols, uh, and this is all in in, in Arizona. Now, you can't even see these artifacts in Arizona because they're locked up in the museum's vault. Uh, but uh, the, the researchers have been able to get them. You can, you can get photographs of them. I was able to uh, look at them, and they allowed me to go in. 
uh, and visit and see these artifacts. And it's really an amazing chapter, not only of uh, the new history of America, but from a historical point of view, that time in the second century and the third century, where you had this interesting mingling of the Christian and the Hebrew cultures. And, you know, this is kind of the interesting case of America. And, you know, I had previously mentioned the Mithraic cults of the uh, uh, Celts. Uh, the Anubis cave that, that, that Craig was talking about in Oklahoma, perhaps it has more Mithraic uh, symbols and writing than any Mithraeum in Europe. In other words, the, the Romans Craig. destroyed all the Mithraic temples in Europe. And they, they destroyed all of the, most of the uh, stonework dedicated to the Celtic gods. Uh, they don't exist anymore except in museums. But you can come to America and you can see the Anubis cave symbols. Uh, you can see the Anubis, the, the god, the Egyptian god of the night. Uh, you can see the Shilin Nagig, the, one of the Celtic fertility goddesses. Um, you can see the cosmology play out as the, uh, the sun god uh, dies as the sun goes down and the uh, 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 god of night in the form of the Anubis is illuminated by the light. So there's so much here uh, for historians, for um, uh, researchers, yet uh, nobody wants to really take a look at it. Now, in the case of the Hebrews, of course, uh, the Hebrews are really... Uh, 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 have an opportunity uh, to to look into their culture in America, as as do the Romans and the Chinese. But in the case of of the Hebrews, uh, there is evidence that uh, the genetic code from some of uh, the Native American tribes, uh, including uh, a, a, a Cherokee tribe, uh, definitely has DNA evidence of uh, from from the Middle East. Uh, there hasn't been many more studies since the book was published, but there continues, this continues to be a great tool, a scientific tool to understand the new history of America. And we, we can see by the records and in not just the DNA records, but, but in the petroglyphic records of the mingling of these different cultures in America. Uh, for example, there's a, a, a group of red-headed, uh, uh, red-haired red Indians that spoke an Irish dialect. Well, they they are no longer here, but there's a record of them. Uh, they, like so many Native American tribes, were, were wiped out by disease. But there is ample evidence that uh, the uh, different generations of Hebrews made it to the Americas, and the evidence in the form of uh, coins, in the form of uh, relics, in the form of petroglyphs, and uh, the lead crosses of, uh, found at the Kalelis site in Latin are all indicative that the Hebrews made it here. Yeah, and, and one of those, uh, like April, she's like, she was really surprised that there are people, you know, that there's you know, all these monuments to the ancient gods and goddesses, you know, here in the America, Americas. And it's true. I mean, like these sites, I mean, there, there's one I was going to bring up with you too. The one, the Pathfinder petroglyph. 
even though that's not really, uh, you know, doesn't really fall like the, with the Celtic thing, but just having that, how it depicts the creation, you know, a story about creation in this. And this is a very, um, very little known site because of it being a, a private and, you know, it's hard to get into it, but still just that the depiction that this has on the wall is just, and these are some of the stories that when people look and if we could actually get archeologists to actually go out and do this research for a change, instead of just like, no, there's nothing there. It's like, it's, I, I don't know how much more of an inscription we can get you that clearly says, you know, for some, this stuff right here. I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to take. Well, you know, you, you mentioned the Pathfinder site, and I could see on the screen that, that one of our viewers, uh, you know, thought it was amazing that there are actually ancient goddess uh, inscriptions mm -hmm. and ancient goddess petroglyphs, uh, and uh, not only from the old world, but uh, as I mentioned, it, at Anubis Cave, there's uh, Epona is pictured on a horse, and the the the, the mother goddess uh, Sheila Nagig is 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 uh, in a carved so that it's just indistinguishable. That could have been uh, a rock in uh, Ireland, for, uh, but the Pathfinder site is truly a Native American site. There's no foreign stuff going on, mm -hmm. but what makes it uh, one of the things that make it so exceptional is the uh, depiction of uh, the mother goddess. And she is uh, pictured it at uh, uh, this particular site. And uh, it's, it's quite a uh, honor uh, for any of us when we go to these sites, you know, we have to take off our brain power and our concepts and really get down on our knees and, and pay respect uh, to, to what we're seeing, because it's not just like we're seeing a petroglyph. No, we're, we're seeing the depiction in art with an alignment of the creation myth of some of the Native American tribes. So as the sun rises on the equinox, uh, uh, a uh, light show occurs, uh, welcoming the equinox. But at noon on the equinox, the sun enters from a hole above uh, uh, at the top of the cave, and it sends a light beam across a 40-foot panel. And that light beam intersects uh, the goddess. And it at that one day of equinox, it is attuned to that goddess and that light impregnates her and the light goes through her and it shows her two sons. And these two sons are the uh, 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 part of the whole mythology of uh, some of the Native American people. So what we're, we're seeing is not just a depiction of the goddess in this case, <laughs> but we're seeing a light show story depicting how father son impregnates mother earth to create the hero twins. So it's a, wow. such a sacred site, such a sacred presence. And I just wish that uh, we, humanity could honor this site and uh, allow the Native American people to be a part of the site because it's truly part 
of a lost history. Yeah. That's so thank you for bringing up the Pathfinder site. Oh, yeah. No, there's another one here. Um, I'm just going to, I wanted to share this here for people to see, because this is another one, the Bat Creek Stone. I'm going to show, pick the picture up there these for people to all, see. And this, are, this is one. Uh, uh, artifacts, in this case, of, of, a, of a Canaanite or a pre-Hebrew writing. Yep. And that's, you know, it's one of those things where didn't they originally believe that this was Cherokee? Isn't that what um, one of the things that they described, like the, yeah, the Cherokee the, writing? The, yep. And uh, the, the, the first guy who looked at it from the Smithsonian said, that's Cherokee. But it was an independent researcher who flipped it 180 degrees and said, no, that's Canaan, Canaanite from the Middle East. Uh, so the, the example you have there on the screen is one of, 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 of uh, uh, many different examples. And that's, yeah, that's one Sorry of those things. Just, it's um, of, 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 uh, of artifacts from the old world. And it's not just uh, writing of, of uh, the, the, the Hebrews. But there's the writing of the Phoenicians that you can see in um, uh, uh, up in Maine and in Massachusetts. And you can actually, uh, if you can read Phoenicians, you can see that they, uh, I'm going to plug my computer in, you guys. I'm sorry. I'm oh, no, you're fine. You can see in Phoenician writing a, a, an inscription that says, this is a uh, landing port. Uh, for Canaanite vessels, or I mean, sorry, for Phoenician vessels. And uh, uh, that stone is now in the museum. And again, I don't know how many uh, archaeologists have taken their time to go visit it as proof that the Phoenicians were here. Uh, but uh, throughout America, uh, there's many secrets to discover and many stones to intern. Now I was going to ask you about the Macintosh stone. Do you, um, do you, are you a belie um, firm believer in that? Craig, you, you, you caught me off guard. Tell me a little about the Macintosh stone. Oh, really? Yeah, um, Mark, you're, you're a little bit more of an expert on this one, too. Let me get up a picture here and bring it forward here. So you pass the buck to me. Well, well, I'm the, well, I'm getting the picture. It's like I'm getting a picture for him here. I was like, go ahead. Uh, it's like the size of a Gatorade cap and, you know, a cord or something like that. And it has um, hieroglyphs on it. Uh, look like they were uh, carved with a Dremel. It's very detailed. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, right, I, I I can send you a, a few photos. Uh, yeah. after the show, I I, I'll, but, I'll, I don't know I don't I don't know specifically about that stone, but in my book I do show a photograph of a stone about that size uh, from Egypt. It's a scarab, and um, you know the smaller they are, the harder they are to find. But this is an example of an artifact, and you know I'm not in a position to 
uh, say it's this or it's that, but I am in a position to say that there are many of these around that have been uh, from different cultures in different locations that have been completely discounted by the archeological community. And we really need to reassess the art uh, artifacts that are stored in boxes in the uh, museums and really take a fresh look. So while I don't specifically know about that stone, I can tell you that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of artifacts with ancient uh, writing from uh, the Middle East, from Europe, from Asia, uh, including Chinese writing. And that glyphs on that stone looked uh, very similar to uh, Far Eastern uh, glyphs. It, it, it was found in Michigan. It seems like there's some evidence that um, the... 1430 uh, Chinese uh, Chinese uh, circumnavigation of the world uh, made their way into the Great Lakes. Maybe that stone was dropped and eventually washed up on the shore uh, in Ron Rademacher's uh, investigating it, but it, it, I I agree with you that it, right. the uh, writing on it does suggest um, a, a Chinese characters, and you know, there's the Nicholas's uh, a recent mm -hmm. publication on uh, the uh, Chinese. Um, uh, coming to America, uh, staying in Cahokia, maybe that could be part of um, a, another sample of the uh, portable rock art that you've written about. And you, know, you have one article here in Ancient American Magazine, number 123. Do my little Vanna White impression. Yeah, you do have some some of your own own photos. Uh, there's, but yeah, you do. I know the radio uh, listeners can't see it, but uh, yeah, uh, Chastity can. Uh, but you know, what did these uh, port? You, know, you described them as uh, being uh, worked with uh, some kind of uh, tool. Uh, what did they symbolize for the people carrying? That then they, uh, they seem to be uh, decorated. Well, Mark, thank you very much for bringing up the topic portable rock art because uh, it's uh, the latest area of my research. Uh, and the segue from the stone that we had on the screen before uh, from Michigan, generally speaking, we could call that portable rock art, but it's, it, it would be more of an inscription. When, when we speak of portable rock art, uh, we're not talking the 1400s. We're not talking the time of Christ. 
we're not talking thousands of years ago. We're talking tens of thousands of years ago. And we're talking about an ancient tradition, not just in North America, where uh, the indigenous people adorned stones with art. And these stones included their tools. Now, this is not acknowledged by any uh, major institution or credible archaeologist uh, like the New History of America. They won't go there. But when uh, the museums of the world are reexamined, what we're going to find is that many of these uh, functional tools, for example, uh, are actually pieces of art with carvings, images, petroglyphs, and uh, they're quite abundant. Uh, th th what I believe happened is that this was the oldest form of art where uh, uh, the artisans would take a stone that they saw that inspired them and they would uh, make it into a piece of art. And it's not just a totem, you know. These are very complicated uh, 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 artistic creations that, that, that use the whole art, to uh, the whole rock, to create many different interrelated uh, images, like the petroglyphs at Anubis Cave, that tell a story. And uh, what's most amazing is, like you would think, you go out and go arrowhead hunting. And uh, unless you're a great arrowhead hunter or unless you come um, a, a, a across a cachet of arrowheads, they're pretty hard to find these days. Oh, yeah. But I'm here to tell you that portable rock art is not, is not hard to find. Uh, it's hard to identify because it's, it's, they're, they're, they're covered up and they're almost in the field, indistinguishable from any rock. Uh, but if you look at the shapes and you become familiar with the artistic styles, what we're learning is the abundance of portable rock art and the tradition goes back thousands of years ago. And it's just now, from what I can tell, being rediscovered. And it's one of those areas where we have lost history. There was some disconnection between the cultures that were creating this art as a tradition over thousands of years ago, and it stopped. Now, I believe that that tradition continued right up until the time of the conquest, but there are other people who think that the tradition ended uh, with the catastrophic uh, bombardment of planet Earth, uh, the great flood story. Uh, but that's not important. What is important is that there's an abundance of portable rock art. It tells us a lot about the uh, uh, creators. Uh, and, and really, most importantly, and this is phenomenal, it, it presents a whole new artistic style. I mean, literally, Picasso, move over. I mean, the kind of art that you're seeing in these stones uh, uh, is multidimensional, literally multidimensional art. So it's something that, that uh, uh, a continuation of my research with the Secrets of Ancient America, exploring this ancient art style, trying to understand why uh, it's been lost to us 
to give a perspective of how to read the art, how to read the rocks, uh, and really do our best to to pass along uh, 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 something that is so uh, much of a connection for humanity. I mean, literally in portable rock art, what we're seeing is a connection between the ancients, the present, and the future, all wrapped up in nature. So these uh, portable rock art pieces uh, created by the ancients, now being rediscovered by us, the moderns, uh, are gifts for the future. And it really uh, is a wondrous tool uh, to help all of us understand the intimate relationship between the ancients and nature. And heck, maybe we're going to learn something about how to relate to nature. And uh, yeah. uh, Lord knows we, we really need that. So portable rock art, I think you're going to be hearing more and more about it. I'm going to be continuing to write about it. And uh, uh, there are uh, some, some really great researchers that have uh, portable rock art sites. And you can see some of the, some of the art. And uh, I could talk about it all day. So thank you so much for bringing it up. I think it's a very important aspect of the new history of America. You know, as you're as you're describing all that, I was scrolling through and showing people the pictures and stuff on there too. So that was that worked out pretty good. Kind of, I was I was able to feel like I was being part of the show. And so, I'm glad it really came across well. Thank you for putting that on there. Oh, you're you're welcome. That was really fascinating. Those are a couple articles, and those um, you can find those two articles. If, I, if I'm not mistaken, you those are on your site, New History of America, correct? That's correct. New, newhistoryofamerica.com uh, under Dot rock com. art. And there's uh, several articles there, as well as other articles that I've uh, published on uh, archaeoastronomy and petroglyphs. Uh, well, you know, Carol, I, you know, uh, Carol, I just said Carol. <laughs> God. <laughs> Ah, I even told You're myself good, man. I, I was coming as long as, as, long as you don't call me sir I, know, I was going the, it, this is one of those Freudian slips the whole time I'm telling myself don't say Carol don't say Carol it's Carell Carell and I, what did I do <laughs> immediately just good, went man. right into what I told myself so Carell thank you so much everybody check out you can go to Amazon um, if I'm not mistaken there is a link on your site to secrets of ancient America archaeoastronomy and the legacy of the Phoenicians Celts and other forgotten explorers and that's newhistoryofamerica.com and you can also in, in the beginning of the show we really got into it uh, about hemp and, which was fantastic and go to purehemptech.com and purevisiontechnology.com to find more information about you know, Carell's work there and fantastic stuff, sir. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, this was so much fun. And uh, you almost inspire me to, to get a beard. Uh, then it could oh, be uh, four beards instead of two and a half. But uh, <laughs> no, seriously, thank you so much. You know, uh, the work, the work you do and the work on alternative radio is so important. 
uh, to bringing the truth out. You just cannot get this kind of information on conventional uh, uh, news and conventional media outlets. And as I said, a measure of how successful we collectively are is when the National Geographics, the Scientific Americas of the world start publishing articles on the secrets of ancient America that are no longer secret. Exactly. Yeah, that's I, I we can't, you know, I, I hope that happens soon because it's just it's a it's a real tragedy that this stuff is just gone unnoticed and you know refused to look at. Well, I would like to not only uh, uh, thank you guys, but also offer good journeys uh, and thank you to your uh, your audience. And uh, yeah. I'm pleased to be in communication with anybody who wants to be in communication with me. So good journeys to all. Appreciate that, sir. Thank you very much. Have, have a great night. Thank you. You too. I, I, I was a lot of fun tonight. It's awesome. Mark, Eddie, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it, sir. Thank you. That that was great help, especially when I threw you under the bus and made you just <laughs> suddenly describe the Macintosh stone and last second notice. <laughs> uh, I was just right. like, I, I'm just, I've, I've got solely focused on, you know, getting over to that. So, all right. Well, this episode was brought to you by Nanny Cakes. Go to Nanny Cakes 407 on Facebook or give her a call at 407-928. Uh, I, I can't see it. My thing's frozen. So you're going to have to help me out. It doesn't matter if you can see it or not. She's been a sponsor. There it is. 923-2898. I know. I, I, I can't. <laughs> hey, I just got done talking to that guy not to say Carol, and I said Carol. I mean, you know, and I said, you know, it's supposed to be Carol. So I'm like, one. come on. <laughs> oh, it's, hey, this would not be this not be hey, show you guys are great. messing up something. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, sir. Oh man, you know, so go go support Nanny Cakes for you know being willing to sponsor this. You know, I'm not sure why. So that's we appreciate we appreciate that. It, go, oh, go ahead, Mark. And we need to thank Inner Traditions for yes uh, con connecting us to Corel. Inner Traditions and Bear Company. Yep, get us. You know, it, this was a fantastic interview. I really enjoyed it. Um, everybody, like, subscribe, share. You know, when you see these shows, if you wouldn't mind sharing them, this really helps us out. It also gets the word out for these authors, musicians, you know, whoever we have on. It really helps them out as well. And we really appreciate all the comments. That was that was great. Um, it's like for me, if people say it's frozen. Like my mind just is for some reason. I don't. I don't know what it is. I think it's because my son just absolutely just dogs the internet with his games. <laughs> so I, th I think that's why everything's frozen on my end. But everybody, threebeerspodcast.com. This show will be rebroadcast uh, tomorrow at eight p.m. at Patriot Radio. Download the Zeno Radio app, courtesy of JJ Beard Company in New Jersey. So go to jjbeardco.com. Thank them for being willing to put us on their show. We really appreciate that. YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. We, we don't do the TikTok thing yet. You know, we haven't got there yet. So, yeah. Maybe. So, Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Fishing. So, Carl Lairberger, Carell, thank you so much. And, you know, go to newhistoryofamerica.com. 
check him out. Also, like I said, the book Secrets of Ancient America, Archaeology, Astronomy, and the Legacy of the Phoenicians, Celts, and Other Forgotten Explorers. Also visit him at purehemptech.com, purevisiontechnology.com. And you can also, Ancient American Magazine, you can also see those articles that I was scrolling through there as well, as well as his site, the newhistoryofamerica.com, where you can go to rock art and you can see those pictures as well. So thank you everybody for watching. Appreciate it. Have a good night. Thank you.